Can you tell the audience a bit about yourself and what it is you do? I'm a personality researcher uh, with ties to clinical and social, but uh, that's how I define myself. And just having retired, I would still have that identity since they can't stop me from researching and publishing. I can keep on doing that until I die. So uh, <laughs> luckily, I don't have the burdens of being a full-time uh, professor anymore, but I have all the advantages. Um, since you can do a lot of research online now, you don't necessarily need to be sitting in your office in the psychology department. Wonderful. And for a major part of your career, you've been studying antisocial traits, which you've coined the dark triad and more recently the dark tetrad traits. So I would love to hear a little bit about what these traits are and if you could just give us a definition of each. Sure. So the four are narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and sadism. They came together when a new student came to my office, Kevin Williams, and he was wondering what the difference was and uh, how many kinds of bad personalities there are. Now, when I say bad, I mean uh, interpersonally malevolent. So there are other kinds of personalities that perhaps would make us uneasy or would bore us. Uh, but these are all very similar in the fact that they involve some kind of uh, malevolence against other individuals. They, all of them had a different origin in my uh, path to where I am today. Uh, earliest, I suppose, would be, yeah, Machiavellianism came first because my advisor at Columbia University was Richard Christie. And he's the guy who invented the notion of Machiavellianism as a personality trait. He was very And just clever. for people who don't know what Machiavellianism is and why it's called Machiavellianism, can you tell us uh, what the origin of it is? Yeah, I suppose it's almost become a, a common English word now, but it's more or less synonymous with manipulative. So Machiavellians are individuals who manipulate others to get what they want from other people. And uh, so let, let me move on to the others before I start contrasting them. But the narcissist <laughs> sure. is, is the one that everybody knows because we all know people who are self-aggrandizing, self-promoting. They want attention all the time and they exaggerate their positive qualities. Then we can move on to psychopathy, which is the impulsive reward seeker. So although everyone has temptations, if you can imagine you could not control those temptations, then you'd live like a psychopath, that is grab and run, and in particular not care about whether you hurt other people. And that contrasts with sadism, 
the, the sadist is the individual who goes out of their way. They'll do extra work just to get an opportunity to hurt other people. So that's a good contrast with psychopathy that in our books is a person who doesn't care if they hurt other people, but they don't go out of their way to look for opportunities like the sadist does. And uh, a lot of debate, a lot of points of view on whether they overlap too much, are they the, really the same at the root? But we hold that they're different. So there you have the narcissist, the self-aggrandizer, the Machiavellian, the manipulator, the psychopath, the uh, the impulsive reward seeker, and the sadist who works hard to find opportunities to hurt other people. All of these things can be controlled by a, a strong impulse control, but at the heart of it, we think all of them have in common callousness, which is the word we use for lack of empathy. And each in their own way, they find a way to take advantage of the fact that they don't, they aren't impaired by our normal tendency to have some empathy for others. So the lack of it means that people will take advantage in one way or the other to uh, exploit other people. So that's the, the roster of the dark tetrad. The uh, first three have been uh, out there since 2022 when I published with Kevin Williams. The sadism research didn't really start till 2010. And we actually took advantage of uh, a couple of things going on in Europe at the time. Uh, oh, what was that? Uh, there was a researcher, a French researcher named Chabrol, who published a paper with the term dark tetrad ahead of us. And he had found that you can separate uh, the four of them in French high school students. And he, he bore a scale from Aisling in the UK, translated into French, published that article at about the same time we were uh, putting together the Tetrad. After that, I guess we really forged ahead and the triad especially took off, possibly because it's a catchy term, possibly because uh, people were wondering, uh, what am I studying? Which one of these am I studying? And our argument was, well, you better find out because they are, they are at least moderately correlated, which means that you don't know which one is operating in your study unless you look at them all simultaneously. And then you can use regression and other techniques to to see which one is uh, is the operative uh, construct in your particular study. So that was our warning, is you've got to look at them all. If you don't, you're going to have to redo all of your research because your personality variable, if you just stuck to one, maybe may not be the one that you think it is. 
So there we are back in 2002. Right. And that's this whole idea of construct creep and the fact that we can basically be measuring more than we intend to measure. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about offline, the distinction between types and traits. And there's a lot of you know, popular culture, YouTube videos on what is a psychopath, what is a narcissist. And we talk about these ideas as if they're types, there's these certain archetypes. And what you're saying is these are traits and we can measure an individual and see how they score on each one of these traits. So we can have certain individual presenting with a certain amount of each one of these. Is that correct? That's correct. And because it's so easy to talk about introverts, extroverts, sadists, non-sadists, that language tends to convince some people, well, there must be a cutoff. And I get contacted on a regular basis. Well, what's the contact for your psychopathy scale? At what point do be, people become psychopaths? And I've always believed that personality traits operate on a continuum. So it's a matter of degree in comparison to other individuals. Because uh, it's not like the old clinical idea of... Um, you either having, have the diagnosis or you don't. That's right, yeah. Uh, of course, borrowed from... From medicine, you've got you've got the mumps or you don't have the mumps, and uh, to some extent that still holds in the clinical uh, area. That is, people have schizophrenia or they don't. Uh, there's some argument that that really should be treated as a category, but the movement is to try to argue that all clinical traits or on a continuum too. Certainly that would copy the personality literature where we've always assumed a continuum view. So I find that um, it's, it's tough to convince some people that there's no need really to have a cutoff. You can use comparisons with control groups, with norms, and learn everything you need to learn about a particular construct without saying, well, gosh, if you have to have a cutoff, well, maybe two standard deviations above the mean or something like that. <laughs> Some people need to have that kind of conception before they're, they're able to even think about these traits. Right. I think that categorization in our head, sometimes we want to simplify things a little bit more sure. uh, than they actually are. How prevalent would you say these traits are in the population? Well, again, it's hard to have prevalence if you have a continuum. It's going to be right. uh, the clinical traits. I think Bob Hare estimated 1% to 2% of individuals meet his clinical criteria for psychopathy, uh, whereas uh, it's difficult for any of the dark tetrad traits to be even considered to be um, considered that way. So I say we've all got a little bit of these traits. Some people have more than others. I understand. So these traits manifest a bit more in men, right? Because they do 
very much negatively correlate with agreeableness. And we know that men on average are more disagreeable than women. But I am really interested in knowing how do these traits manifest differently in men and women? Because there still are women who do present with these traits. Do, do they present in different ways than men do? Well, that's been a challenging question for quite a while for us. And in one way, it's pretty simple. That is, men score higher on all of the dark traits that we've looked at. And we have really been going out of our way to try to find an angle where women are showing the darkness too. The um, closest that people have come to it recently is the work uh, by Tracy Viancourt and Aaron Buckles, among others, trying to look at the mean girls and see exactly what is it they do so that they are labeled mean girls. And there, there are a set of behaviors such as spreading gossip that seems to be more common among uh, females than among males. And uh, so the notion of social relational aggression is a term that's being thrown around recently. And uh, those researchers, among others, have been trying to develop scales that uh, show women scoring higher than men, because up till now it's really been a complete failure in the sense that despite the stereotype, oh yeah, women can be mean too, that it's tough to get a, a measurement instrument that will verify that. Right. Women do opt for much subtler ways of aggression right? They're not going to use physical aggression most of the time. It's going to be behind the scenes, social reputation, destruction, uh, gossip, as you said. And I'm sure these are much more difficult to gauge in, a, in, in these kinds of measures, especially when you add this whole social desirability component. And uh, women do want to present themselves as more agreeable, um, even if they do exercise in these mean girl habits. Yeah, so I hope something comes out of that research because in a way it seems just too simple to label uh, males as the bad guys and they're the only ones who wreak destruction in society. So that's, <laughs> that's on the agenda. Right, so speaking of you know these more subtle ways of aggressing towards others, I think this whole phenomena of online trolling, we have this new way of aggressing towards people, being malevolent towards others, hurting people that doesn't require physical aggression. It doesn't require uh, being present in the same room, but we see this phenomena uh, and it's very prevalent. So can you tell us a little bit about your research on trolling and everyday sadism, as you'd like to coin it? Right. My introduction of that particular construct and its addition to the dark triad was triggered by a couple of observations at my university. And around yeah, in the 1990s, people were still playing arcade games. That may be before your time, but these big machines were uh, located in a room at the university 
And uh, absolutely, I loved Dance Dance Revolution. That was my arcade game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite sadistic, but <laughs> right. Well, I, it was. I still, I still got a chance to to enjoy the arcades. Yeah, that's good exercise too. But when I, <laughs> I tried to keep an eye on which um, games were the most popular, and I noticed one day that all the machines were empty except for one, and there was a crowd around that one game went over to see what was happening on it. It was called Mortal Kombat. And oh, yes. <laughs> so I was watching to see what it was about, and I saw two people fighting. One guy's head was lopped off, and the blood was gushing all over the screen, and people were cheering loudly. And the other machines, the old popular ones, Mario Brothers, they're all being ignored compared to this one. So why why would that be? Uh, the second episode for me was uh, a repeat episode, I guess, was watching hockey games. And hockey games are considered to be Canada's national game, and yet we're supposed to be a kinder and gentler version of Americans. But in terms of hockey, uh, the crowds love to see fighting. They will cheer for goals, and your team is winning. Yeah, that's great. But the fun happens when the fights start, and and your goon player pummels the face of the, the goon of the other team until they both look like hamburger. And the cheers <laughs> of the crowd, they're just drooling in ecstasy to watch this. until. One player perhaps falls to the ground, starts twitching. The crowd falls to a hush. And so you can see a different part of the brain happening there. These are human beings in the crowd. Sure, they're cheering for the nastiness of the fights, but they also have a brain that reacts to uh, injury. And it's only when they cart off this victim player and he puts up his hand and and uh, indicates he's not dead, that the crowd cheers for him. So they they can kind of have their cake and eat it too, enjoy the gore, at the same time as cheering <laughs> for survival of a victim. Anyway, the that notion of the enjoyment of nastiness in Canada's national game put together with the introduction of more and more nastiness in arcade games, suggested to me that, gosh, there's a dark side that loves to see the nastiness. And I don't know whether I'm particularly reactive to that, but uh, people really vary in their reactions to this. So it wasn't everybody cheering for Mortal Kombat. Yeah, there were some people who walked away after a while and presumably were a little too sensitive to seeing people's heads knocked off in blood and gore. <laughs> so we decided, well, we're going to do some research to see and verify, indeed, that people do differ with respect to whether they like this awful treatment of other human beings. 
And so we put together a study that got around the ethical problem, because you can imagine, especially with the very sensitive ethical review boards these days, that right. we don't want to have people inflicting pain on others. So we had a couple of ways of getting around it. One of them was to have people kill bugs instead of people. Now, we tried to anthropomorphize these bugs by giving them cute little names like Muffin and Ike. And we had oh, wow. Label- <laughs> That'll <laughs> do it. Yeah. We had these labels on them as if they were little people. And they were asked to pour these bugs one at a time into the killing machine and press the top of the machine until they could hear the crunching sound. And uh, it was actually just coffee beans being crunched. But (laughs) they thought they were crunching little animals. And the degree to which they seemed to enjoy doing this was correlated with the personality scores, particularly on number four, everyday sadism. Later on, we started using uh, uh, voodoo dolls, which are little dolls that look somewhat like people and can can be um, considered to represent people in their lives. So we ask people to think about someone they hate and go over it in their minds for a little while. And then... You say, when I leave the room, you take these pins and you stick them in the doll to the degree to which you really hate this person. And when you come back, you see, in some cases, the dolls are full of pins. And in other cases, there's nothing there. So just the doll the way you left it. The Again, a correlation with the self-report personality scales particularly on everyday sadism. So this was convincing us this was a genuine phenomenon, that people did differ to the degree to which they enjoyed um, at least symbolic suffering in other human beings. So that was validating our personality scales, which is really what we did with all of our dark tetrad measures. And in a sense... Right, understanding that you what you are measuring is actually real that you're seeing it in other manifest in other ways for yeah, instance the, bottom, the number of pins in the voodoo doll the bottom line is always overt behavior and if you can show that people differ in overt behavior then you're and show that it connects with the personality scales then you're starting to convince people okay you've got something here so that's the uh the story of the development of our, our interest in doing everyday sadism research, but it it, it took a lot of um, thinking and uh, indirect uh, methods to show the link between what people do in real life and what they say about themselves on the personality scales. Right. I think this is such an important point because beyond all of these antisocial traits that we are more familiar with, the psychopaths and the narcissists, there is this component of actually having pleasure from seeing somebody else suffer or 
making somebody else suffer, that pleasure component. And, you know, as we know, the shows today that are the most popular are very, very sadistic shows. For instance, Game of Thrones, which now there's a, a sequel, the something about dragons, I don't remember what it's called, which has even up the ante even more. You know, it's even more violent and bloody and we enjoy it. And, you know, we look at practices such as the gladiators back in the day and we like to think, you know, wow, people back then uh, were so awful that we would never uh, enjoy something like that. But that thrill, that thrill does exist. And obviously to a certain degree in all of us. And I think it's important to make the distinction, you know, when we're talking about everyday sadism, the difference maybe between a proper psychopath, as we like to think about them, is, is there any remorse at the end of it? What is the tolerance? Is there any, you know, reaction after seeing the, as you said, the hockey player, you know, completely fall flat after the crowd cheered for the fight, you know, people were kind of appalled by the fact that they uh, went unconscious, but people who are more psychopathic would not care very much. That wouldn't bother them. So there is that distinction, but still we can see that, you know, in the general population, we do have these phenomena of everyday sadism and just enjoying seeing other people suffer. Where do you think that comes from? If you had to, you know, think about why, why we enjoy these things. Is it pure schadenfreude and just we're happy that we're not suffering and somebody else's? How, how do you explain this to yourself? Yeah, well, according to evolutionary principles, it all boils down to mating success. If you don't get your genes into the gene pool, then there will be no sign that you were ever on Earth, and uh, your behaviors um, will not be carried on to your offspring. But the uh, one can more easily see the evolutionary success of narcissists who are very confident people, um, Machiavellians who can manipulate people into mating, psychopaths who can force people into mating, and sadists at least can scare off their competitors. And that's half the battle, because there's going to mm -hmm. be a lot of competition for mating, and if you can't force away uh, the competition, then, then the mates are a lot more available. So evolutionarily speaking, I think to me that's the most compelling of the, of the arguments for why is it still with us? Why is it part of a modern human being that uh, engages in behavior that doesn't seem to fit civilized society of the uh, of the current century. I did want to add something right. um, yes, that, please. that caught me um, more evidence for sadism in our bones, and that is the most popular book of this century, you might not be able to guess, is a book called Shades of Grey. And oh, God, really? Is that the most popular? The it passed Harry Potter? <laughs> the, just ahead of 
of the Potter books and um, oh, wow. the Hobbit and those. But um, it, it's very interesting because it's really a romance novel, and men don't read romance novels. Only women do. That's a bit of a generalization, but it certainly cuts down on the ability to sell books if only one sex is buying them. So here you have For a sure. book that um, really engages people, especially women, in thinking about a sadistic activity, really attracts their attention. It's probably a pretty complicated uh, dynamic of what's going on, but it seems that partly, partly fear, partly um, projection of their own thoughts and uh, what do you call them? Um, um, you know, hidden vices that women mm. may have that aren't ordinarily expressed, but they feel it and they find it particularly fascinating. So there's something to pursue there in, uh, in terms of sex differences. And, uh, and um, definitely, I think this does point to the evolutionary adaptiveness of these traits. They are still around, so they must work. They're not so prevalent that we're all, you know, extremely sadistic or extremely psychopathic. So there are better strategies, but they do work. And I do think that it points to, you know, having a mate who's able to fend off, uh, you know, enemies that is attractive, that, um, you know, physical ability, that aggression, perhaps sadism. And I think the Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, is a whole cycle of uh, sadomasochism. So there is definitely more to explore there. Um, yeah, you should get someone on to to talk about that. Now, that does <laughs> lead into um, the, the notion of trolling, which right. didn't, didn't exist before because we didn't have the internet. But now we have the opportunity to be nasty to other people with no repercussions. You can be really horrible and... No one's going to get back at you physically or legally. It's just uh, a pretty safe opportunity. And it provides a really cynical view of human behavior because if you think, well, now that, now that there's no repercussions, we're getting at the real human condition. This is the way people really are. And that sounds pretty cynical, but it fits in with the fact that the more confidential, the more anonymous uh, people's behavior is, the more likely it is to be on the negative side. So here you have a new phenomenon that uh, was created by technology. The worst thing you could do in the past was write a nasty letter to somebody, maybe a letter to the editor saying right. something nasty, uh, and the editor would probably not publish it. But you could send it directly to someone you disliked, and uh, that, that's the worst you could really do. Uh, but you could avoid repercussions entirely by going on the Internet and spending your, your time like a, 
like a lot of people do, spend significant amounts of time looking for happy people to embarrass, disrupt, um, and see how they respond to it. So you get a chance to make happy people unhappy. Well, you can you can go through the internet and find interest groups from almost anything, whether it's uh, a vegetable growers group or whether it's <laughs> the Justin Bieber fan group. And you can say nasty things to them, saying they're all idiots and stupid. And um, when we ask people, why do you do this stuff online? Why would you engage in trolling behavior? And they said, we like it. And so our first paper was, um, trolls say, um, trolls just want to have fun. That's it. Isn't that it? Right. Brilliant title. <laughs> I borrowed from an old song. It used to be girls just right. Cindy Lauper. <laughs> right. Very good. And so uh, that kind of captured our findings, which were surprising in a way. We thought maybe vengeance or something of that sort would be the number one explanation for why people are on there spending their valuable time uh, making other people unhappy. And it goes on and on with other kinds of internet opportunities. Um, uh, it's, it's brought it's brought into being a whole variety of different uh, ways in which you can disrupt other people who are who are going about their daily lives and making them more unhappy to your benefit because you love it. Right. That's fascinating. That. People can enjoy, you know, ruining somebody else's day, even if they don't know them. You know, it's not vengeance, as you said. It's not someone has wronged me, so I want to wrong them back. It's pure sadism, enjoying somebody else, uh, you know, suffering, hurting somebody else's feelings. And, you know, this anonymity piece, I think, is so important. One of the things that I definitely have observed, and I wonder what you think about this, I think the same phenomena that you see on the internet, you will see in big cities, right? Such as New York. That aggression, that being mean to someone and not caring, and just just for the sake of it, I think that uh, we allow ourselves to bring out that sadistic quality when there's more distance between people. For instance, in New York, there's so many people. You're so anonymous that you can allow yourself. Do you Do you see that? as being a parallel? Yeah, I lived in New York for quite a few years. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it, right. uh, this phenomenon really raised a possible explanation of why dark traits are still with us, especially psychopathy. And that is, in New York, you don't bump into people. Now, maybe in small towns you do, and you say, I'm sorry, or whatever. In New York, you don't do that because you're afraid. If you bump into people, they're going to turn around and do something really horrible to you. So you're you're a little more careful. So the argument there is, well, that's why we need psychopaths to prevent <laughs> people from um, uh, misbehaving, especially in large cities like that. It reduces the amount of aggression to some extent 
to be afraid of what people are going to do back if you happen to accidentally or otherwise um, uh, physically aggress. Interesting, interesting. I think another point here, you know, looking at trolling and looking at cyberbullying, for instance, and how prevalent that is. And I think it allows this more female version of aggression to express itself. And, you know, once upon a time, you know, a child who was bullied at school could come home and have refuge. And now they're bombarded, you know, 24-7 by mean girls and the like who, you know, sadistically enjoy hurting them. And I think that's another another place where we're seeing this uh, very, very much. Have you seen that in your research at all? Have you guys touched upon cyberbullying? I haven't looked specifically at it, but I watched the literature and I see that, yeah, the, um, the reason why there's increases in suicide and, and other mm-hmm. uh, uh, self-hurting. I guess Jean Twenge has really gotten into this. So she uh, recently published a book trying to explain why why really seems to hurt people these days and exactly what you said you can't get away from it anymore Um, people are stuck to their phones and you might say it's partly masochism but it's just a natural human tendency to to see what people think of you and how they're going to react to what you recently said to them or what you recently did and so it's 24 hours a day, your pal, a smartphone, is saying nasty stuff to you while suicide isn't far away. Right, right. I think, you know, it's a question whether people are becoming more sadistic because of technology or we can just see how sadistic people are now and it's just allowing us to, you know, see it uh, manifest. So. That's definitely a question. Stephen Pinker argues in his um, most recent book that people are actually... Yeah, the better angels of our nature. That's it, yeah. That people have become much nicer over the years. So since the days of bread and circuses in Rome, that there's much less nastiness. Uh, I don't even like to talk about the kind of stuff that he relayed in this book, but... <laughs> I, I take it you're you're on the other side of the fence. Well, yeah, I I think that we have the opportunity with the internet to to show our nasty side, but whether overall people are more sadistic, um, I can't say. I have to leave that up to uh, Stephen Pinker. You know, I think it's also this distinction between physical aggression and verbal aggression. I think maybe today in our modern society, we're so comfortable that we don't need to be as physically aggressive. So you're seeing less of these, uh, perhaps, right? I think maybe if uh, if we want to uh, blend these two ideas, and we are seeing more more of this female type of aggression that is so easy over the internet. And even, and, and when I say female type of aggression, I don't mean only females 
engage in it. You know, you have that classic image of the guy in his basement with the Cheetos on his chest and just writing nasty comments and ruining people's days. Um, but perhaps, perhaps we're seeing more of that and less physical aggression. Maybe that's progress. Maybe it's just, in, you know, our modern world, but uh, we'll leave it to Steven Pinker. Uh, I did want to ask you, of these dark traits that you've studied, have you found that they are more prevalent in certain professions? I've seen a couple of studies looking at uh, university majors, and it mm -hmm. um, seems like darker traits are there among um, law students and among business students and the least among art students, which kind of fits with the stereotype of the, um, the bleeding heart uh, art students mm -hmm. um, who uh, want to save the world or as business students and law students have other, uh, have other goals in life. As far as professions, um, I know that the idea of empathy as the superordinate human virtue is brought into question when you think about occupations like surgeon, where you have to cut right. into people's bodies and slash them up and not worry about the sight of blood and guts or even uh, sounds of pain uh, have to be secondary to your goal of solving the person's medical problem. And uh, uh, Bloom at uh, Yale University has written uh, quite a bit on this notion that we overemphasize the importance of empathy, which, which sounds like a horrible statement to, to many people because they think that's how we should evaluate the world is on empathy. But if there are other things, other goals in mind, like curing people or developing strong enough soldiers to defend your country, then you've got to have at least some of your folks have the ability to overlook their natural human empathic reactions and under the right, right circumstances to defend the country. They can kill other human beings. Um, and uh, really the, the, the notion that I, I published a chapter last year on uh, empathy for animals, where hmm. human beings show a pretty distinct hierarchy of what animals we empathize with, and it's not all the same. So the argument that uh, of animal advocacy, which is save the animals, doesn't quite work because we put them in a pretty distinct order of who we want to save and who we care less about. So there's a number of factors that play into that. The uh, I think the big four were um, the animals assumed intelligence based on observing their behavior. The animal size, for some reason, we have more empathy for bigger animals and their aesthetic appeal if they're softer and prettier, then we empathize more with them. And then finally, to a lesser extent, if they're harmful to us, we empathize less. So those factors 
allow people to share a fairly common hierarchy of empathy. So that that notion that empathy isn't everything seems to be taken into consideration in a variety of areas these days. Right. I think that's an important point. And as you said, some people, you know, might not like the sound of that, but we're not saying that empathy isn't important. Obviously it is, but of the virtues, there are other qualities that we do need to survive in this world. And I think in our modern culture, this notion that being nice is everything. And I I think is problematic, especially when you talk about, you know, healthy aggression, setting boundaries, you know, being authentic to yourself. It it, it obviously will conflict with being 100% empathic to everyone and to everything. Obviously, in the moment we have, you know, our close ones, we're going to be more empathic towards them. You only have so many resources to give. So I think this point that there are, as you said, certain professions that require less emotional reactivity, you know, special forces units, um, surgeons, as you said, and the like. I think we, we, in our modern world, we're so divorced from reality that the evolutionary perspective of just remembering what it was like for our ancestors needing to hunt. I think this empathy for animals is definitely uh, irrelevant because do you have empathy for the animal and do you not eat and feed your family? So obviously we have different qualities and different virtues and there are contexts and there are hierarchies and you know, everything has its time and its place, but I think it's really important to look at these nuances and, you know, ground ourselves in a more evolutionary perspective, to say the least. Um, I would like to ask you, you know, a little bit more of a zoom out philosophical question here, because you do research human evil, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, philosophical talk around this topic of good and evil, from your research, from your, you know, reading the literature and being immersed in this work, how do you conceptualize human evil? Well, I never liked the label evil. It just seemed to be <laughs> um, too vague and just not realistic enough that, um, sure, we usually claim evil when a lot of harm is done, especially motivated harm. You did it on purpose, and you hurt a lot of people. But otherwise, to me, it belongs in the realm of philosophy rather than psychology. So even for the concept of sadism, I use the term every day because rather than saying, well, there's evil people out there, but I'm not one of them. Well, how about thinking about fact that everyone has some glimpse into at least one of the dark tetrad and so it's it's just very human to have a dark side um, i could not agree more i think it's very helpful to think about ourselves as also having a shadow side also having the capacity to do evil the capacity to do harm And I think knowing that, you know, knowing that we're all descendants of Cain, so to speak, I think it can help us 
be better people because we need to watch out for, you know, our capacity to be callous. We all have our moments of callousness. Uh, we all might have, you know, sadistic urges. And if our values are not aligned with that, I think it is very, very helpful to understand that we have the potential to do harm and that we choose not to. I think that's a much more sophisticated philosophy. Yeah, you're right. It uh, puts us more in contact with the real world. And uh, to the extent that that's part of our nature. Of course, the the old philosopher psychologists like Freud and Jung, they talked about this as mm -hmm. very essential to trying to understand people. So uh, Jung's shadow and Freud's anatos acknowledged from the right. get-go that there, there's a dark side. And that's something that has not been studied enough, the notion that you can be both. Now, human beings, because we have to make decisions about fight or flight, uh, mm -hmm. we tend to categorize people into the, the good people and the bad people, and it tends to generalize so we can organize our lives a little better if we know who the good ones are and who the bad ones are. But if we all have those traits, uh, it becomes a little more complicated. <clears throat> so you can't go, you can't really deal with life very easily if you think about both sides at once. Though you might say, well, Hitler was atrocious, yeah. And uh, anybody who says otherwise has to be chastised. Um, and so anybody who reports that he was kind to his children, for example, hmm. um, is immediately jumped on. So you can't... Um, right. Of course, that's the most extreme example. But in general... But I think it, it very much speaks to what you're saying. I think that uh, nuance of understanding that and I think Hitler is the perfect example because we like to, you know, categorize everyone that we think is evil, pure evil, as Hitler's, right? We use him as that archetype. And I think it's not helpful because there is good and bad in all of us. And, you know, at, on one side you have, you know, I, I like to think of it as a mama bear, you know, protecting her cub, but she can also be very aggressive and violent towards others. And it's two sides of the same coin, right? On the one hand, it's love. And on the other hand, it's aggression. So as you said, not categorizing others as evil and thinking we are pure of heart, I, I think is more difficult. But at the end of the day, it can help us see humanity in uh, much clearer terms. So now I would love to ask you, you know, just wrapping up, I'm always fascinated by how people arrive at, you know, their career and their research interests. And I would love to hear how your research developed through the years and how you came to be interested in these dark traits. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, like most academics, you're influenced by your advisors. And uh, at Columbia University, I worked with Richard Christie, as I mentioned before. Um, right. I also worked with Harold Sackheim, who studied um, self-deception, among other things. And 
self-deception, at least the way we measure it, bears a very close resemblance to narcissism. So people self-deceive in exaggerating their positive traits. So there we had two of the, the four represented in my grad school experience. When I moved to the University of British Columbia, uh, Bob Hare was just down the hall, and he's he really considered the emperor of research and psychopathy. So we collaborated a little bit, but uh, spread my wings. And I guess the the fourth one, everyday sadism, I think I hinted at earlier, was really personal experiences. So the, uh, the other right. three were based on uh, personal influences, uh, that is, people who influenced me. And the fourth one was something that I saw with my own eyes that I thought other people were not noticing <clears throat> enough that it should be studied a lot more. So um, previous to that, I was interested in psychology and mathematics. I got a degree in math as an undergraduate. And so I always loved the notion of measurement, measuring the psyche, mm -hmm. psychometrics. And so some of these issues all come together, like the whole notion of lumping together the dark triad and the dark tetrad seems to be natural to some people. <clears throat> Instead of being a splitter, some people are lumpers, and they want to consider all of those dark personalities to be the same person. And even uh, there's a team around Moshagen in Germany who claim there's only one dimension, the D factor, the dark factor. And so people can be arrayed on a single dimension of darkness. And that always seemed to be an oversimplification to me. Not really useful in the real world you're interviewing people or considering romantic partners, I can't really pinpoint each individual on the same D factor. So uh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, yeah, so lumpers and splitters, being, being a splitter, uh, I've tried to tease things apart. But at the same time, we've got measures that tend to correlate positively. So all four of these have at least moderate positive correlations. They're never negative. So that makes these psychometrics very challenging because you have to untie the confounding, the overlap of each of the right. tetrad. And there's lots of psychometric arguments and disputes about how to best do that, whether you should do it. And uh, people just naturally tend to lump together the bad guys and the good guys. And that notion goes back to Thorndike and the, the halo effect and the devil effect, where right. it's just, I think it, it can be traced back to our requirement to make decisions. We have to go with this person or with that person. We have to run from them or fight them. And right, the, these that, need to, for quick heuristics. Yeah, right. Uh, so you have to make decisions on the go, then you can't be thinking about 
well, he's high on this, but he's low on this. You have to say, well, he's good or he's bad. And um, so it's difficult then to, to, to get people to rate others on, um, on the dark traits. They, um, it tends to collapse into a, a, a devil factor or a bastard factor where um, mm. if he's bad on this, he's probably bad on everything and stay away from him. And the nice person, perfect in every other way too. <laughs> right. I think, you know, um, you know, listening to your story, just for all the undergraduates listening, you know, who are thinking of, you know, which direction to take, I think that combination of a mathematical mind and also being interested in human behavior, just know if you're out there, uh, you're in high demand. <laughs> There's a lot of statistical work to be done. As you said, you know, the psychometric work is, um, you know, more challenging for people who like to lump things together and simplify. Uh, so I think it is a, a good a good example uh, for people out there who are, you know, debating whether to go um, in certain directions. And if you're wondering whether to go into psychology uh, and you're a little bit more mathematically oriented, uh, just know you are very much welcome <laughs> if you're out there. Uh, wonderful. So thank you so much, Delroy for coming on the show. It's been fascinating. Is there anything you want to add that we didn't touch upon? Well, if you're going into the business, then you need both the science side and the creative side. And mm -hmm. if you're not a genius at one of those sides, then um, perhaps psychological research is your home because you can come up with ideas that are testable. Then you... Um, Take a stand and represent a certain point of view. You've got to fight for it. And uh, there's always competition. But it's really uh, a fascinating vocation if you can follow those guidelines. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Delroy. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you.